I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Books to Live By, the podcast that reveals the reading matter that's inspired and informed some of our most significant public figures. I'm Mariella Frostrup. I'm your guide on this journey into the books that have shaped the lives, perhaps even changed the views of actors, comedians, writers and more. In fact, this time my guest can tick off most of those categories uh, as I'm thrilled to be joined by the award-winning comedian, actor, writer and campaigner Francesca Martinez. The first female comic to win the prestigious Open Mic Award at the Edinburgh Festival. Previous finalists included Noel Fielding and Frankie Boyle. Francesca Martinez's work in comedy has seen her tour the world and appear on TV in shows including Live at the Apollo and Extras with Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. Francesca, who has cerebral palsy but prefers the term wobbly, published her first book in 2014, What the mm is Normal, asking what normality really means in today's world. That's a subject which seems to align well with her campaigning work, which often strives to highlight inequality and disability rights, as well as speaking out on austerity, climate change and racism. And now Francesca has written and stars in a new play at the National Theatre, All of Us, described as a passionate look at the human cost of abandoning those who struggle to fit in. Well, I could just go on reading an introduction to you, Francesca, for hours because there's just so much in there. But I thought maybe since I've mentioned it, why don't we start with the play? I know that your dad wrote some plays, didn't he? So was it always an ambition? Um, Well, I grew up in a very creative household and I guess when I said to my parents that I wanted to be a performer at the age of like two, um, they weren't too surprised and they were incredibly encouraging. And I guess creativity has really been a a big focus in my family. The reason that my family are in London is because my grandfather, Francisco, um, grew up in Spain and fought in the Spanish Civil War, where he then spent seven years in rehabilitation camps. And after this, he became a writer. And he wrote a novel, which was very anti-Franco, and that novel was published in Mexico. So, understandably, he felt a little bit nervous, and he applied for asylum in Cuba and London. And London accepted him on quite a strange condition, actually. They said, you can come and live here if you write a new novel and publish it within a year. No. Yeah, quite incredibly, my grandfather did. Um, And that's why we're in London and my dad grew up here. So in a way, I, you know, I owe my very existence to literature. So I grew up in a house where there was always some, you know, um, new writing being created and my other grandparents were painters and my brother was very keen artist too and one of the funny things which I'll probably talk about later is that we didn't have a TV. My parents were incredibly liberal but they were very certain that they didn't want the TV in the house. I think because they didn't want us to become just passive observers, you know, whiling away our hours watching a screen. So as a result, my brother and I, you know, were very bored. And apparently boredom really fuels creativity. So us, us were super judged. 
Was there a, a pressure on you, therefore, though, to be artistic, to to express yourself creatively? Because often kids rebel, don't they? The thing that you want them to do is the very thing that they turn away from. But it sounds like you were quite a well-behaved child. Uh, well, no, I've got to say I was very blessed with my parents because they were the kind of parents that didn't impose their own views or will on us. So um, there was no avert pressure on us to be anything or do anything. They just wanted us to be happy, feel loved. Um, As a result of not having a TV, we used to talk a lot. So I grew up having a lot of kind of debates and and they were always there to go and ask questions too or, you know, mull things over. And I think that created a bit of a sense of confidence. So the main thing was they wanted us to go and do something that we were passionate about. And um, I was very lucky because I was a very, very happy kid. But then I went to an all-girls high school and that totally changed because I realised with a massive shock, oh, my God, I live in a world that views me as disabled, abnormal, broken, brain damaged. And as a result, that took away a lot of my confidence. So I felt very unhappy. But luckily for me, I ended up getting a part on Grange Hill. And that happened when I was 14. And it kind of took me out of that negative environment. And it made me believe that perhaps I could be a a performer for a living. And towards the end of my time on Grange Hill, um, my father, who is a writer, um, said to me, why don't I write you a a script? And I said, OK, Dad. And he, he wrote this amazing script, but he made my character a stand-up comedian. No and way. I read this, yeah, I read this and I said, Dad, this is Oscar-winning, you know, Cameron Diaz could wobble it up, win an Oscar. Um, and amazingly, it got kind of brought up by a film company and they were quite keen on casting me. So I went all Robert De Niro and I joined a comedy workshop and um, I started to dip my toe into comedy. And what was quite interesting was I found it so terrifying that for the first six weeks, I did not say a word in this workshop, which for anyone who knows me is very rare. Um, And then eventually I plucked up the courage and I wrote a routine and performed it very badly. I think I breathed about twice in five minutes. (laughs) But amazingly, everybody laughed. And in that moment, I realised, wow, this is incredible and I want to be a comedian. Um, Now, the film never got made, but I owe my dad my entire career because what happened is that I started to gig And within a year, I found myself at the Edinburgh Festival winning the award that you mentioned. And that that really, I guess... You were on your path. Um, What about when you were younger? I'm interested in what you you were saying about, you know, you were an incredibly happy child. Uh, It sounds like a rather idyllic childhood. And it sounds uh, like an idyll that was smashed uh, when you went to secondary school. I wonder... Before that, I mean, I'm not sure what age you were diagnosed as wobbly. My fingers are waving in the air in inverted commas. But um, I wonder if books were a place that you were able to find yourself at all or not as a child, because there aren't very many books about uh, children with disabilities, are there? No, I mean, there are two answers to that question. The first answer is I couldn't walk till I was three. So as a result, I I kind of had to develop other faculties. So I learned to read incredibly early and I became addicted to books, primarily because 
they made me feel liberated because they sparked my imagination and I knew that I had a body that didn't always do what I wanted, that caused me frustration, that was different to others. And in books I found an escape and I found a, a kind of unlimited freedom which I became rather addicted to really. Um, the inner world of my imagination. So, I mean, I would read hundreds of books a year. What were you reading? What sort of things? Well, you know, I read a lot of the children's classics. I read a lot of Ina Blyton. Ironically, I loved her series, The Mallory Towers, on the girls' school. It was a much more idyllic, positive That was my favourite. Yeah, I know. I thought, doesn't this sound amazing? I wanted to go to boarding school. I was living in Ireland and with no money for going to boarding school or anything else. I wanted to go to boarding school and I wanted to play lacrosse, which I didn't even know what it was, but it just sounded like something that every girl should be able to play. I was the same. And so when I wobbled into my all-girls high school, I had this quite, you know, positive, idyllic image of what it would be like. And of course that came crashing down rather quickly. I would say books were my solace. And they gave me a sense that there were almost two parts to life. There was the physical realm and then there was the invisible realm. And that realm was one of imagination and dreams and passion and creativity. And I started to write... At quite a young age, I wrote stories, I wrote poems, um, not for anyone else, but just as a means to express myself. And I found it really useful and almost therapeutic to have this side of my life that wasn't labelled, disabled or impacted by anything physical. Was there a heroine that you most wanted or hero indeed, uh, that you most, you know, that, that you idolised at that point? Well, I had these very unrealistic dreams, almost, I think almost like I was in denial in a way. Um, I think partly because my parents were so loving to me. Um, and you asked about when I was diagnosed. Well, I was diagnosed around two years old. And right. the, the, my parents took me to a, a consultant and he, he spent a few minutes with me and then declared that I was um, mentally retarded. Uh, this proved not to be true because I've never voted UKIP, only joking. Um, but <laughs> apparently he also said that I would never lead a normal life. And when I later heard that, I thought, who wants a normal life? I want a bloody amazing life. And I was very lucky because my parents, despite being very young, I mean, my mum was 19, my dad was 21 when I was born, they managed to leave that meeting and reject his negative framing and take me home and just love me as Francesca. Now, I'm not quite sure why they had that kind of strong-minded ability, but I think that actually defined my life in a very deep way because they did bring me up to feel totally normal, totally loved and very confident in myself. So, of course, there was a big clash when I left that lovely kind of a haven of home and emerged into the world and realised, oh, the world sees me very differently. But it's so interesting because, in a way, the books that you've chosen today, none of which are particularly light reading, dare I say, uh, but are all, each one of them, uh, in a different way about making the world a better place. So do you think in part, you've been chasing that dream of an ideal world that you had when you were young and are now pursuing it in adulthood? That's an interesting question. Um, I think I grew up with, with a very strong sense of social justice. My parents were very kind of non-prescriptive about what 
I should do or my brother should do. But we were always given a sense that, you know, try and do something of social value, something that matters. So rather than think about money or security, um, first of all, think about something you're passionate about. Now, I remember my parents saying to me, if you pick something you love, your life will be full of joy because every day you'll be happy to go and do it. And I think that is honestly such an amazing bit of advice to give to a kid because I had done that and it's made me feel like whatever we do in life, you know, if it can have some kind of meaning then we'll be fed by it, but also, hopefully, we'll have some kind of tiny impact on the world around us. Now, let's look then to the the five books that you've chosen, and and let's start with Yanni Varoufakis um, and Adults in the Room, because we know you primarily or best, I suppose, as a, as a comedian. But it, this is the first in, in... I mean, these books are no laughing matter, are they, really? <laughs> are you surprised by that choice? I'm not surprised by the choice, but I would say that I'm interested in whether... We must talk about the books, I suppose, specifically, but I'm interested in whether you read for pleasure or you read to find new ways of thinking or you read to perhaps hear other people articulate the things that you're passionate about anyway? You ask really good questions, Mariella. That, like, honestly, that is such a great question. If I tried to do the answer it quickly, I would first say that I have huge curiosity about the world. So I don't really read fiction at the moment because I'm so hungry to learn about people and the way things work. I think I have a real desire to understand the world we live in and to inform myself. And sometimes I read books that are full of very depressing, difficult stories of things like human rights abuses. And I find myself going, Tess, why are you reading it? And I do think it's really important that we try and educate ourselves. And even if it's about reading about something terrible that's happened to a group of people, this makes me really silly, but I feel like I'm honouring them in some way to learn of their lives and, and what they live through. And I think it's important that we read about history and what's happened in the world so that we can better understand ourselves. This book by Yanis Varoufakis was described uh, by Paul Mason in The Guardian as one of the greatest political memoirs of all time. Um, I wondered what it offered you a window to that, that made you choose it. Okay, so... My partner, Kevin, bought me this book for my birthday in Spain and I could not put this book down. Basically, for those who don't know, it's a really explosive account of his time as a Greek finance minister in 2015. And I guess what I found so fascinating was it gave the reader this rare inside look at the inner workings of power. It reads like a thriller. So it's a real page-turner, but at the same time, you're getting this kind of whistleblower account of how one of the top institutions in our world, the EU, works. And I guess I found it really eye-opening to gain that personal insight into the echelons of power that we're not really given access to, are we? Like, no one usually speaks out and lifts the lid on how that world functions. So for me, it was, a, it was in a way, a very depressing book. 
Well, I was going to say because I mean, you know, adults in the room. This is a. This was like the little guy. It was like David and Goliath, wasn't it? And and there's David, you know, in yes. the in the shape of Greece, going up against this world order, this European world order, and and not winning no. the, the battle against them. And I think one of the most shocking things that I felt from reading this book was that basically one of the key um, points of his time as Greek finance minister was that the EU was trying to force him and Greece to sign up to a bailout package. But the truth is Greece could never, ever pay this package back. And we condemn generations for years. And and Yanis was blue in her face telling them this, you know, and suggesting alternative um, and more viable packages. And there's an amazing moment in the book where he's in a room with the uh, German finance minister called Wolfgang Schubel. And he asks him, would you sign this package if you were in my shoes? And after thinking very carefully, Schubler says, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> but they couldn't deviate from the path, which was the EU imposing austerity. And that anecdote really impacted me because I think that most of us like to believe that those in power are trying to be rational and sensible. Yeah, the truth was, here was the EU agreeing with Yanis in private that the bailout was impossible, but in public continuing to saddle Greece with an impossible deal in order to fulfil an ideological aim. I found that a key point, and it made me understand a bit more. Wow, we live in a world that... Those at the top are not the most wise or ethical or kind, but they're the ones willing to be efficient cogs in a very inhumane machine. So by the end of the book, I was so inspired by Yanis because this is a man who, at huge personal cost, really stood up with so much courage and integrity and fought for the most vulnerable in his country. And although he didn't end up succeeding, I think it's so important to know of human beings who are willing to do that, because to me that's where hope comes from. You know, while we... He's he's an outsider. Uh, That's... Well, it's funny you say that because there's also a really interesting anecdote early in the book where he meets Larry Summers in a bar. And now Larry Summers served under Bill Clinton in his administration. And Larry tells Yanis that there are two kinds of politicians, insiders who don't rock the boat and outsiders who basically can't be trusted. And he asked Yanis, which kind of politician are you? And I guess in a way the book is a very comprehensive answer to that because he's that rare breed of politician who is driven by a moral compass and a desire to serve those in need rather than his own personal gain. He's also... um an outsider in a way but but the other interesting thing i think is uh, you said about uh, about it that it opened your eyes to how powerful institutions rely on obedient people to keep them going um i would say that one of the things that's really integral to you is you're disobedient have you always been disobedient and 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 did this book confirm to you that that was the right role to take well you know what? I think growing up wobbly has made me feel an outsider from the word go. I was born into a world that told me I was faulty, that viewed me as a pity object, and that really didn't have 
much expectations of me. So obviously that really impacts you psychologically. Like I think my whole personality has been shaped by that dynamic. And yes, you know, it's made me really want to prove myself to the world. Like my family will tell you I'm a perfectionist, you know. I am I can be a workaholic. I can just drive myself in insane ways. Um I'm glad to say I've learned and grown and I don't do that anymore to the same extent. But I know that there is a deep drive within me to prove that the world and its definition of me was wrong. And also, I really want to challenge this whole notion that... um, uh, disability equals suffering because that's kind of a that's an accepted assumption within my within normality but I always think that people are much less defined by their bodies and much more defined by how much love they get and in that respect I feel like I won the lottery I had fantastic family grandparents so I got many things and many kind of benefits that some other people don't have and I think this way of viewing people and assessing them by their physical capabilities is really really superficial because you know what if happiness came from walking and talking normally, the world will be full of Dalai Lamas and it isn't, is it? So <laughs> it's... in my book, what causes suffering is a toxic value system. That's what causes most suffering in the world, a value system that tells us we're not good enough, that constantly pressures us to conform and to try and aspire to impossible ideals. And once I rejected that and made up my own, I found peace and happiness again in my life. So I would really kind of make the case for that if we want to eradicate suffering, eradicate that toxic value system, not different. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You say that you found peace and happiness, but your next choice, you you mentioned being uh, addicted to books as a child. Your next choice is about a different addiction. Uh, It's uh, Johan Harry's Stolen Focus, which really is kind of quite a long criticism of 21st century addiction to mobile phones, isn't it? And I know you you once said that that you were addicted to your phone before you read this, I think, quite a long time ago. So is this something that that, that you read because you were were already feeling like, where is my focus? Who has stolen my focus? Um, Actually, the opposite. I've never had a smartphone. I'm one of these weird people. In fact, my whole family and my partner... We've held out. We have very old Nokia phones. Um, They can't even take uh, photos or receive photos. So if someone sends me a photo, 
I get a text saying, someone sent you a photo. Log in online to see it. Um, so I'm actually very passionate about my time and I choose very carefully which technology to embrace and which to reject. And I think that's partly come from this need in my life to question dominant narratives because obviously the dominant narratives didn't suit me. You know, they told me that I I wasn't good enough and that I was faulty and broken and abnormal. So when technology comes along, I feel like I really want to think very carefully, is this going to benefit me or is it going to actually cause problems and be destructive. The thing I found fascinating about this book was it, it's very scary and they, when they talk about the algorithms and how these companies work to make you uh, addicted and so on. But it feels a little bit one note to me, this particular book, in that he doesn't address at all the huge advantages that, that I mean, smartphones uh, in particular have brought huge swathes of, of, of the world where access to information, access to the the global north, you know, what was impossible. I mean, if you, you see a kid in a, in a school in Africa who actually has, you know, access to the WWW, you actually see a world opening for them and 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 part of the sort of thing about all of us being negative about phones and I'm the world's worst you know I mean I haven't been a constant tug of war with mine but I have to accept that that's also a sort of luxury position because my phone isn't my lifeline um yeah and for some people it, it can be yeah that's an interesting point look I've chosen to go without and my my Friends and were like, how what about if you get lost and you don't have your Google Maps? But I found the I find the advantages outweigh the disadvantages. So a lot of my friends complain that they don't read anymore because they're always on their phone. And my parents um, tutor a lot of kids, and for a while now they've been saying that kids come to them and they can't read. So they can actually technically read, but they can't absorb any information. And this is happening again and again, and then they talk to their parents, and the parents say, oh, I can't get them off their phones. And I think what's happening is that a younger generation who is reared, who are reared, looking at screens all day, it's much harder for them to develop the focus needed to actually expend your attention for any significant amount of time. And I think Mm. that's quite a profound implication. Because, I mean, are we creating generations of people who are going to find it hard to absorb information or read because the step further from that is like are they able to um, assess information are they able to think critically and one of the powerful points in the book that struck me was um, there was a few people saying that you know in order to tackle the issue of climate change which is obviously the number one issue facing us. That's going to require people coming together, organising, protesting, uniting. And they were expressing real worry about whether our addiction to technology would hinder our ability to come together and and fight um, in ways which in ways which require um, intense focus and deliberation and assessing of information. So I think um, while what you say is correct and technology in itself is probably quite a neutral 
day. I think what we're finding is that the forces that shape that technology are not really interested in designing it to enhance our life and give people the freedom that you're talking about. And interestingly, if I was to uh, read a duo of books, then I would start with a Johan Harry, Stolen Focus, uh, discover how many predatory companies that were out there, you know, demanding my attention and, and having a very cynical approach to to grabbing it. And then I might turn to your next choice, which is a sort of antidote, isn't it? A New Earth, Create a Better Life by Eckhart Tolle. Because um, this is very much about how to live a better life and how to find real meaning in it. it Tell is. me about this choice. Um, well, OK, so at the beginning, I think you are, you mentioned my play. And um, my, I wrote a play, my first play, it's called All of Us, and it was due to open at the National in March 2020. But I don't know if anyone remembers, the thing called COVID came along and basically shut us down the night before our first show. Oh, you're joking. I didn't know it was the night. I knew it was shut down. I didn't know it was the yeah. night before. That must have been so disappointing. The timing felt very personal. Yeah. And, and I think the show is uh, kind of set against a backdrop of austerity and it kind of felt like the Tory government had engineered COVID to shut the play down. Now you're, now you're <laughs> showing me your conspiracy theorist tendency. <laughs> Yeah, it's all about me. <laughs> no, that was a joke. It, obviously, it was a painful... Um, it was a, a bit painful to go through the seven weeks of rehearsal and build that momentum and then suddenly find yourself at home on your sofa in pyjamas watching Netflix. So I hit a bit of a slump and... Um, Talking about it now seems so first world problems. Oh, my play of the national got born. But obviously, it was a big deal for me and it was a difficult thing to climatise to. So I was a bit down in the dumps and I came across Eckhart Tolle and um, I watched some podcasts with him and I was just transfixed by this little German man who was so unassuming and you know I guess usually I'm quite averse to anyone who presents themselves as a guru or a spiritual leader but what really attracted me to him is he was like oh you don't need me you don't need a middleman it's all in you the peace and the clarity is within all of us. And I just, it, it was the, that message I needed to hear. I needed to hear at that time. And I went out and bought his books. Rather, I didn't go out because I was at home shielding. You I know how you got books. the books. <laughs> and um, I really, pretty life-changing. So for anyone who's, who isn't, that familiar with Eckhart's method. It's really simple. It's basically like all we really have is now and we spend so much of our lives projecting ahead to the future, what will happen, or think about this, the past and how we've been scarred by it and the pain we carry around. But actually... So many of us lose the power of now, the beauty of being alive on Earth in the present moment. And that's exactly what I've been doing for a few months. I've been just, like, feeling sorry for myself and kind of not being able to, to motivate myself and get beyond what's happened. And suddenly I read this book and... And I realised, Francesca, change your perspective. You're here, you're now. You, you might get knocked over by a bus tomorrow. Just enjoy the beauty of existence. 
and thanks to Eckhart, he kind of, he, I felt my joy returned to me, and I, I love the empowering nature of it because it is all about finding that perspective, and I've done it once before. Remember, I told you about my my teenage years and yes. how it left me very lacking confidence. I'm very ashamed of being wobbly. I wished I was normal the whole time. And then when I was about 20, this is after, you know, a good eight years of hating myself, I basically met a guy in a pub and for whatever reason I said to him, I'm brain damaged, as you do. And he said, no, you're not. That's just a label other human beings have tried to make up to define you. But you are perfectly you. And in that moment, I realised, wow, I'm not broken or brain damaged or faulty. I'm Francesca. I'm me. I'm exactly how I'm meant to be. And I know it sounds crazy, but I went home and all my self-loathing fell away and I apologised to my entire body for being so angry and so resentful at it because I realised my body's a miracle. It, it gives me life. It allows me to be me. And I just suddenly felt so appreciative. You, you you mentioned reading Eckhart um, during the pandemic and you didn't go out to buy it because obviously you were isolating and you were particularly vulnerable. Did you did you have particular fear then? I mean, did, did his embrace of the now and life and the way your body allows you to breathe and the heart beats, did it make you more afraid of losing that? Was it a scary time for you? You know, I was very privileged and I think the pandemic really exposed huge inequalities. I kind of I kind of remember viewing it as a horror movie. Like, you know, all the well, all the well off people can stay at home in safety and, you know, all the poor people can just go out and basically risk getting this awful virus. So even throughout my, um, you know, low points, I I felt very lucky that I was in a position where I could safely stay away. I didn't have to go and work in a shop or drive a bus or work in a hospital. And I so I feel that the inequalities that COVID highlighted were really stark and really extreme and you know in 2020 um like 60% of all deaths were disabled people which is a very shocking statistic and one that we don't really hear about because I think we're we were viewed as an expendable group you know like our sacrifice vulnerable do you really think that well, I think the figures show them show that to be true. The fact that we had um, hospitals no- knowingly uh, releasing COVID patients into old people's homes and into care facilities. I mean, there's a word for that, you know, and it's quite scary. I, I think the, um, the lack of care in the sense that, you know, some people are more expendable than others. And I mean, going back to my play, we've had a decade of, more than a decade of austerity now. And austerity has hit disabled people harder than any other group in the country. And I think that's partly because it's harder for them to make a fuss, you know. The nature of disability means some people can't even speak up. They can't speak. They can't leave their houses. So how are they going to go and show their discontent? 
It's it's interesting because, um, of course, uh, your next choice is by Eleanor. It's a, it's a biography of Eleanor Marks by Rachel Holmes. And, you know, once upon a time and still in many parts of the world today, women are that othered community regarded as of a course. minority, you know, without rights and, and, and so on. Now, Eleanor Marks was a, a feminist campaigner. I'm actually mortified that... I. I mean, I I knew of her existence, but I didn't really know anything about her. And, and it's a fascinating book. Tell me what it was that appealed to you about her story and her. Well, I really love biography, the North biography. I said to you before that I'm fascinated by people. Um, and, and I really am. I love people's stories. I love people's lives. I think that there are reasons why people are the way they are and you learn about them through their lives. Um, so, Eleanor Marks, I mean, this book is one of the best biographies I've ever read. It's written beautifully. It reads like a novel. It's so detailed. It paints such a vivid picture of her childhood. And she is just the most incredible woman. She was born in 1855, and she was the youngest daughter of Karl Marx and I just loved reading about their family because they were often struggling and in deep poverty but there was such a sense of joy in the house and life and conversation and, and fun. It and, sounds like yours. Uh, I don't know about that but it certainly was a lovely childhood to read about and to kind of to immerse yourself in and while Karl Marx was writing Das Kapital um, she would play in his study and he would always stop and play with her like he never shooed her away he never said daddy working and I felt like quite lovely because apparently he loved to tell her long stories and make her laugh and think and I think that's very far away from the dry, serious, academic type, which maybe some of us think of him as. But she was also, um, you know, everything she did was sort of hidden from view in a way. You know, she was the woman behind the curtains in a way that felt quite sad and frustrating. I mean, obviously because of the time and, and whatever else, but... You know, she was like the brilliant secretary who should have been the boss, kind of yeah. thing. Well, yeah, obviously, Mariella, she was a woman. And, the, you know, whatever problems our times have, I, I'm grateful that, that I live now in this country because when you read about historical female figures, you realise, my God... They had so little options. But the amazing thing about Eleanor was that even despite that, despite those massive constraints and societal restrictions on her, she did manage to have such an impact. You know, she was an amazing activist. She used to go on all these demos and the stories of when police would arrive. She turned round and all her male friends had scarfed and she was the only one left brave enough there to face arrest and sometimes physical violence. So she was a really incredible woman. She was highly intelligent like her dad. She was passionate, brave, deeply committed to social justice, a brilliant speaker and a writer. And a lot of what we know about Karl Marx does come from her writings. But I guess there's another very human element of the book, which is her love life and her downfall in life was falling for a very selfish and unfaithful man called Richard Aveling, who treated her with real cruelty. And I think he seemed to resent her brilliance. And basically, you know, this guy ends up ruining her life. It's quite hard to, to fathom as a reader because the gulf between her brilliance 
and her weakness for this man was tragic and in the end it it cost her life uh, just 43 years old and and when I finished the book I was in mourning because I thought what a brilliant life cut short you know what else would she have done and by the end of it you really fall in love with her I gave it to my partner to read and at the end he just said I love her and that I think that that's what you get from the book you just fall in love with her You've got to see the parallels uh, as characters between you and Ellen and Marx, because as you as oh you explain God. her, <laughs> all I do is see you. But what I'm wondering is you come across so ebullient and like you're a really strong life force and you're incredibly opinionated and determined and you've clearly battled all kinds of adversity in order to be heard. What's your weakness? You really have great questions. What's my weakness? Well, I mentioned it before to you, and this incessant need to prove myself. When I was 23 or 4, I actually developed severe chronic fatigue precisely because I drove myself so hard when I started comedy, I felt like, right, I had to keep up with all my able-bodied male counterparts. And that means I have to work extra hard. And so the thing about stand-up is you can work every day of the week. Weekends mean nothing, holidays mean nothing. And as a result, I did. I just ended up working all the time. I felt like, oh, I love this, so it didn't work. And then after about four years of it, I began to feel utterly exhausted all the time. And I, for the first time in my life, became very depressed. (laughs) And what would happen is on the day of a show, I would wake up and cry. And I would feel like, how am I going to get through my show? I've got, I'm empty. And I would do this show and cry again. And eventually I went to my doctor and he said to me, uh, you got burnout. And I was like, what's burnout? What's that nonsense, burnout? You know, okay, what shall I do? And he was like, you have to take six months off right now. I said, six months? I've got a tool book that don't work and do that. And he said, Francesca, if you don't stop, you will end up in a hospital with a very serious illness and that was a massive wake-up call to me and I had to totally recalibrate my whole relationship with sleep and with relaxation and by extension it made me question society's obsession with work and the pressures to align our self-worth with productivity and I can Honestly, say I chucked all that out the window and now I love my sleep so much. And I think my motto in life is do less, sleep more. <laughs> it's a good motto. I'm, I'm pursuing it myself, but you're not 50 yet. You <sighs> wait till you get to my age and sleep in your 50s becomes it's at such a premium. It becomes the hardest thing to actually achieve is a good night's sleep. But look, I can't let you go before because you, you we talk about your brother's book because you clearly come from this incredibly close knit very inspiring family who've, who've given you such a, a great base from which to kind of platform yourself out into the world. And I'm presuming they did the same with your brother. Tell me about your relationship with him and and about this book, Creating Freedom, Power, Control and the Fight for Our Future, because Raoul, your brother, believes that we're much less free than we like to think, doesn't he? Well, Raoul was born when I was five and... I loved him instantly. It was the best day of my life at that point. And we've been best friends all my life. And I used to think that was because he was my brother. But then I grew up and realised, no, it's not that normal for you to actually like your brother. We all love our siblings. 
by the fact that we get on and we enjoy each other's company. And funnily enough, I think he's the only person who's known me his entire life. So to him, I'm totally normal. Like, his friends at school used to say to him, why did your sister talk funny? And he was like, what do you mean? Like, he couldn't see me through their eyes. So we've had an incredibly close relationship. He was always a very, very interesting mind. And he spent 10 years researching this book. I think it's a staggering piece of work. Stephen Fry called it his book of the year when it came out and he's not related to him so <laughs> you know take his word for it but yeah it, the book really is a very in-depth very carefully researched look and it, it explores the rhetoric of freedom which is so pervasive in all our lives and it asks questions like do we really have Things such as free markets, free media, free elections, or do we in fact have a system which is far from free and actually exists to curtail many of our most basic human freedoms? And combined with those very well-researched, thorough, fascinating chapters, you've also got this very humane thread throughout it which is asking us to be more compassionate for each other by reminding us that we're all shaped by forces that we don't control. So our notion of ultimate responsibility is a weak one because, yes, we do make choices, but we make them with a brain we didn't choose. So I guess if we look at things like... um, You know, what contributes to crime in society? So if we know that poverty, inequality and domestic violence are strong factors in the backgrounds of those who commit crime, we should look to address those instead of placing the blame on just the individual. So in a sense, it's asking for a much more rational approach to the big issues of our day. Uh, and just to illustrate this, there's a great bit of research from America and it was one of the most fascinating bits of the book for me. Basically, the study showed that one of the states had trolled this educational programme. So they gave every prison inmate the right to do a college degree in prison. And the results were astonishing. The rates of violence among prisoners dropped to zero, I think. And re-offending rates also plummeted. Now, here's a fascinating bit that Did they roll this programme out countrywide? No, they cut it completely because they didn't want people going to prison to get a free college education. And that story impacted me so deeply because, again, mirroring Yanis' book, it shows the irrationality of our world. Instead of acting upon evidence-based data, The US lawmaker decided it was more important to reject that data and maintain a prison system that was violent and had really high re-offending rates. So I'm incredibly proud of Ralph for writing this book. I think everyone should read it because it's so important to try and understand the world we live in. Francesca, you've chosen some remarkable books and you've given us so much food for thought. I'm I'm exhausted just thinking about all of your big ideas. I want to know (laughs) I want to know if you ever just read Mallory Towers for a bit of a rest at the end of a long day. I haven't read Enid Blyton in a very long time. And she has a lot of dodgy stuff in her books. So sadly, I won't be going back there. But do I read the so-called fun books? Um, 
I guess for me, autobiographies would be a fun read. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm one of those weird people. I don't really need, like... I think because I write myself, I'm not looking for escapism when I read. I'm looking to either be impacted in a beautiful way or inspired or or taught something I didn't know or challenged. I love anything which changes my mind about things. That was quite spicy and exciting. Um, so I definitely want books that, that impact me in, in some real profound way rather than fluff. Well, I am incredibly grateful to you for sharing just some of those books. It's been really fascinating and inspiring to talk to you. And I'm really grateful that you shared your books to live by with me. Thank you so much, Francesca Martinez. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Books to Live By with me, Mariella Frostrup. I do hope you enjoyed it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please follow Books to Live By on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the Times Radio app. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.